We have three different scripture passages today. You'll see that written in your bulletin with the Pew Bible reference. 1 Kings 19, Jonah chapter 2, and Mark chapter 1. So I'll give you a moment to find those. We're talking about solitude this morning, and we're going to see some lessons that come out of these moments of solitude in these three different passages. The First Kings passage is talking about Elisha. Obviously, Jonah, and then in Mark chapter 1, we'll see some solitude that the Lord himself takes. 1 Kings 19, Jonah 2, Mark chapter 1. Let's stand together as we read God's word. 1 Kings 19, beginning in verse 11. And the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go. Return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be the king of Assyria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Japheth, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Jonah chapter 2. We're actually going to begin in verse, or chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to Jesus all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. You may be seated. 
as a congregation, we actually exercise a moment of solitude together. After the reading of the word, we sit quietly before the word and allow it to have its work on our souls. And uh, having talked to many of you all, you find this one of the most refreshing parts about the service is to just sit quietly together. So let's do that as we would have the Lord speak to us before I speak. I will dismiss the kindergarten and first grade. And I want you to know that I had a certain uh, fright this week when I was preparing this sermon. When we talk about the subject of solitude, I had this intense fear that all the women who have infants would see me at the door and say, Solitude, okay, let's talk about solitude. And they'd hand me their infant and say, I'll see you next week. I recognize that there are seasons in your life that offer less opportunity for solitude. Uh, but nonetheless, there's an importance of it at any point. But um, I'm encouraging you dads when you go home, especially if you have an infant, that the only way your wife is going to get solitude is if you volunteer. And so don't make her beg you to do it. You, you say, I'd like to do it so that your wife can have some time to be alone with the Lord. Let's uh, pray together. Lord, we're going to talk about something here that's all over the Bible. The redemption of the world had its foothold in solitude. Whether it, whether it was in the wilderness and the temptation of Christ by Satan, or was it, whether it was in the Garden of Gethsemane, things got worked out in solitude that never got worked out in busyness. And so I'm praying for your help to help us to see its value as a discipline in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you know that I was away last week and I was doing some traveling and I spent one afternoon, a really fun afternoon, walking around Furman University, which is where I graduated from. Now, 25 years ago, and um, so I couldn't believe that you walk around this campus that you felt like you'd never get out of, and you know, you remember as a freshman, you'd have to accumulate so many credits before you could register as a sophomore, and you'd see somebody who had 80 credits, and you'd think, how's that possible? You never actually get to that point, and you actually do, and uh, I just had a lot of memories, 25 years going back to, to the memories of these four years at, at Furman. And one of the memories that I'll never forget was this sort of impromptu camping situation that I had with some buddies. We went out to the mountains of South Carolina, and I think it turned out to be probably like the coldest night on record in, in the South Carolina mountains. And I was ill-prepared. Well, you just go out, you grab whatever you have, and just, you know, you just make it for a night. And so... Uh, a friend of mine got the, we didn't have a tent, we just had a tarp. So we just strung up some rope and we put a tarp down, which at the, in the middle of the night basically served as like a wind tunnel. It captured all the wind into the tarp and right through our little wind tunnel tarp tent. And then as I was going to bed, you know, I realized I'm, I might die this evening. And somebody said, well, you know, take one of these rocks that have been next to the fire and put it in the bottom of your sleeping bag. And it'll keep your sleeping bag warm. 
And so I take this stone and roll it down to the bottom of my sleeping bag, and it was really warm. And you could sort of keep your feet on it, your feet were warm, you felt warm. Until about three hours later, it basically felt like a block of ice that I had my feet resting on. So here I am in this wind tunnel. I've got a block of ice that I have my feet now permanently attached to. And I have a sleeping bag that basically is like a paper towel. I mean, it was, uh, you know, you've seen these sleeping bags that are like 20 degree bags or 10 degree bags. And so they keep you warm as long as it didn't dip below that temperature. I had like a 90 degree bag. And so if it dipped below 90 degrees, this thing was absolutely worthless. And so around four o'clock in the, in the morning, when I was just a total a human ice block, I thought, I've just got to get in somebody's car, turn on the car, and just push the gas all the way down and get this heater cranked up. And so at four o'clock in the morning, I, I'm just getting any key I can and trying to find the cars. And I get in the car, and finally I just begin to, to thaw out. just felt like it took a whole hour being in that car so I could just sort of move my limbs again. When we talk about the spiritual disciplines... We're talking about the means God uses to thaw out your cold, dark heart. They themselves don't do it. They're just the vehicle in which you get into that exposes you to God. And then he begins to transform your life as you sit quietly before the Lord. As you read your Bible, as you pray, you get in touch with this massive heating source that falls out your life and then begins to transform you into the image that he would like you to live out in your life. And so we've been going through these spiritual disciplines, and today we're going to talk about the spiritual discipline of solitude. Now, since we're coming towards the end of this segment, and we've talked about a number of spiritual disciplines already, me being your pastor, or we can think of it as your physical trainer, your spiritual physical trainer, I'm asking you who've been here this summer and you've gotten on the fitness program, what's your report? How are you doing? I mean, that's part of being a personal trainer is you walk alongside the person and say, it appears as if you're still eating donuts. So let's try to cut those things out. And so how are you doing in your fitness this summer? We've talked about Bible reading. Are you putting down the remote control? Are you putting down your books, even if it's a Christian book? Are you putting down the novels and magazines? Are you getting up extra in the morning saying, I must sit before the furnace of God in order for me to go live for God? We've talked about prayer. In your prayers, have you been mindful? Have you re- remembered it's all about God before it's about you? When you've gone to God in prayer, instead of just ripping out the four or five or six or seven things that you need, have you said, first, God, I want to remember it's all about you. I want to put you in the right place before I bring my needs up underneath that. In fasting. Some of us are crippled 
Because we just can't say no. Some of it's no to things that we shouldn't be involved with. For many of you, it's no to things that are good things, but too many good things become crippling. And so are you skipping a meal? Are you skipping two? Are you skipping three? In some way, are you seeing the power of God working in a way that begins to transform your life? Solitude is the one we're talking about this morning. I don't know if you remember seeing the cell phone advertisement. There was a billboard here in Wilmington, and I can't remember which company it was for, but the tagline for it was, Silence is Weird. I mean, the cell phone companies just don't want you to have silence. The more minutes you ring up on your cell phone, the more money they make. Dallas Willard calls the exercise of solitude the most radical of all the spiritual disciplines. You and I live in a wired culture. We've got iPods in our heads and we've got phones attached to our ears and we're always moving around and we've got radios on or televisions or conversations. There's constant movement, constant motion. And so for us to to begin to discipline ourselves to be in solitude is going to take some real exercise. Now, let's imagine just for a moment, and this will be a stretch for your imagination, but just imagine, if you would, with me, uh, that there's someone here that's immersed in their work, uh, immersed in their family, immersed in their education. They're sort of caught in the, in the trap of everything's got to be faster, everything's got to be quicker, I, I've got to move through the line faster. Somebody who, when they come up to the stoplight, they're already looking, which is the shorter line? Again, I know this is hard to imagine somebody like this, but imagine a person that lives their life that way. You know, in the, the turn of the 19th century and the 20th century, the people who were beginning this age of industrial re- revolution, do you remember what they thought? They began to wonder, what are the people, once all these technologies come out, what are they going to do with all their time? They're going to have so much time. Time now. What are these people going to do with all their time? And you and I are saying, time? Who's got time? I need things to go faster and faster and faster. And the faster they go, the faster we feel like we have to go. Imagine this person feeling like this. I just don't have time to slow down. I mean, slowing down is just unrealistic. You should come live with me for a day. You should see all the things I've got to get done. If I slow down, my first thought is, I'm wasting my time. I mean, this half hour, the things I could get done in this half hour. You know anybody like that? Imagine that person was me. Who would you say for me, if this was indicative of my life, who's the most important person in my life, if this just described me, who would you say? Me. I'm critical. I've got to be there. I've got to get it done. If it doesn't, if I'm not there, it's just not going to happen. And I would say to you, if you said, Paul, I think you're the problem, I would say, no way, man. I mean, all I do is give my time away. I give my time away to the church. I give my time away to my family. I give my time away to my friends. 
And they'd say, no. You'd say, no. You've fallen into this trap of believing that all people and all events can't move forward unless somehow you're at the center of it. You're making it happen. Paul, you're addicted to yourself. Recommendation, solitary confinement. The prison system understands the value of solitary confinement. Somebody who's got a will of their own and doesn't desire to follow another will gets solitary confinement. And so God uses solitary confinement to say, Paul, it's not about you. It's not about your will. It's about me. And as long as you're on the fast track and you've always got to be at the center, guess who's no longer at the center? Me. So I want to allow solitude to have its place in our lives. Abbot Bamberger, it's on the front of your bulletin, says this. In solitude, you come to terms with your basic powerlessness your fundamental inability inability to solve yours or other people's problems or to change the world. You see, exposure to God begins to break you out of your will and break you into his will. And so I want to look at these three passages today of Elijah and Jonah and Jesus, and I want to pick up some lessons from solitary confinement. From, from, from Elijah, we were going to see that Elijah learns perspective in solitary confinement. From Jonah, we're going to see that Jonah learns repentance in solitary confinement. And from Jesus, we're going to see that he understands direction from solitary confinement. Let's look at 1 Kings first, 1 Kings 19. Most of you will remember that at the end of Solomon's reign, King Solomon, the son of David, the country of Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom called Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. And so the, the, the uh, northern kingdom, one of the first prophets to the northern kingdom to call the people back to the Lord was this man named Elijah. And one of the wicked kings in the northern kingdom, his name was Ahab, and he had, his, he had his, a wife named Jezebel. And so Ahab brought in all these idols underneath uh, his reign, and Elijah was saying, "That's not; those things aren't real, we're not going in that direction. And finally there was like a showdown on this mountain called Mount Carmel. And most of you will remember that there's two altars built on this mountain, and, and they said, whoever's God answers by fire, they're the real God. So Elijah stood forth and said, well, you guys go first. And they tried to whip up some kind of energy that fire might fall from heaven and nothing happened. And then Elijah called on the Lord and he ripped down into the altar, not only the one that was made to him, but the other one as well, and just consumed them by fire. Well, you can imagine how intense this situation was from Elijah. And as soon as it ended, Jezebel, the wicked queen, said, I'm going to kill Elijah. And Elijah got afraid. And Elijah went on a little journey of 300 miles. He ran away 
from Jezebel the queen. Imagine how difficult the situation must have been for Elijah, how intensely involved he was, and then he finds out the queen wants to kill him, and he just doesn't want to have anything to do with it, so he runs 300 miles away. Elijah, the the great prophet, ends up alone in a cave. And in the cave, he hears this little whisper. And although Elijah was a great prophet, what the intensity of his service warped his view of reality. Even though he's a great prophet, what happened in the intensity of his service is he severely overestimated himself. And he severely underestimated the sovereignty and the power of God. And so Elisha, in this cave, learns many things. But the thing that I want to focus in on today is he learns perspective. He learns that he's not necessary. He's needed and wanted by God, but he's not necessary to God's plan. Verse 13 and 14, you see this? I'm the only one left. Elijah comes out of this cave to God's whisper and he says, God, I'm the only one left. Kind of like he's informing poor God. I mean, I did my best, God, and and I'm just the only one who can do this. Elisha learns this in God's response. God's not worried. God has a plan. I think one of the reasons there is this tremendous upheaval that Elijah sees. He sees winds that tear mountains apart. He sees uh, fire come out. He, the earth shakes in some way. And notice the Lord wasn't in any of those things. He was just in a little whisper. And I think what God is helping Elijah to see is no matter the earthquakes in your life, no matter how much upheaval is in your life, I'm in complete control. Whatever is shaking the foundations of your life right now, where you feel like I'm the only one left, God is saying, I've got a plan. I'm not at all worried. And Elijah, you need to gain some perspective. God has his people. You learn in verse 18, he has 7,000 people who have remained faithful. 7,000 prophets. Elijah, and some of you may need to hear this today. You're not the only one. You may feel like the only one, but you are not the only one left. And finally, and I think most humbling for Elijah, must have been this. Elijah, I've got your replacement already. If I were just 
speaking to a group of pastors, and since there probably aren't too many pastors here, I'll look at whoever would fill this spot. This is a very dangerous place. Because it can feel like nobody else can do it like this person. If we lose this person, we've lost it all. If they lose me, who else could come in? I'm the only one who can stand in this gap. And God comes down and says, I've got your replacement already. You see, one of the terrifying things about solitude that Elisha learns is he's a great deal smaller than he originally had thought. Remember what John the Baptist said? He must become greater. And what did he say about himself? I must become less. Some of us need to hear that message. You, as important as you are, as loved as you are by God Almighty, you're a lot smaller than you really think. And no matter how critical you think you are, he's got a replacement. I just imagine what Elijah must have felt like on that 300 mile journey back. Gosh, I ran down here thinking I was the only one. I'm not the only one. Gosh, I thought I was the one that was holding this stuff together. He's already got my replacement. Gosh, I didn't know where to go. and He's already got a plan. Elijah learns some perspective. So no matter what's going on in your life right now, God's in complete control. It has not caught him by surprise what you're in. No matter how important you may think you are, the only person that matters is God. And once we realize it's all about God before it's about me, Then we become really useful in the kingdom of God. Until then, we just start building our own kingdoms. Jonah, most of you know the story, some of it very well. And I want to just detail a few few lines of it. And you listen to hear where you may be in this story. My guess is that there are some people in this room who are living in some part of this story. So listen and see if this might apply to yourself. Jonah clearly hears the word of the Lord and he knows exactly what to do. And he doesn't do it. He knows exactly where he should go and he decides, I just don't want to go in that direction. I don't want to live by God's commands. I want to live by my commands. And I'll take God's commands when they work in with mine. But when they don't work in with mine, I just don't have any interest in that. I'd like to go in a different direction. Jonah runs in the opposite direction, thinking blindly that he can escape from God. That maybe God wouldn't notice if I just didn't do what he wanted me to do. Jonah's running becomes costly for others. His unwillingness to live by what God has commanded actually now is costing maybe the lives of other people. 
He knows what he should do. He just can't make himself do it. And if it costs somebody else, well, it costs somebody else. Finally, when the truth is uncovered in Jonah, that Jonah is running from God, notice that he doesn't repent. He just despairs of life. Remember the sailors find out, well, he's the reason and they continue to try to get back to shore and they can't get back. And Jonah doesn't repent at that point. We don't know what would have happened if Jonah right there had repented, but he didn't. He just said, throw me overboard. Is anyone in that situation here today? You don't want to kill yourself. You just wish somehow you were eliminated from the problem. Anybody wish that they just were out of the situation? Jonah repents. By the grace of God, he gets swallowed by a well. And when he's at the bottom of life, he's at, it says Sheol, that's hell. When he's in a living hell, he finally says, I, I, I can't do it. I repent. There are some of you in this room who've been in that place. You've been in a living hell. And you've gotten so lonely and so desperate that you've called out for a living God. My fear is that more of you are somewhere along the path. You know exactly what God wants you to do. You just aren't going to do it. And even though it begins to sacrifice the lives of other people, you just can't seem to get yourself turned around. And even when it becomes discovered, you just say, I don't really want to repent. I just wish my life were ended in some weird way. And Jonah finally gets to the very bottom and he repents. And some of you here need to repent and say, God, I know exactly what you want me to do. I've, I've tried to dance around it. I've tried to find excuses. I've made excuses. I even see that it's hurting other people around me. But I'm, I'm repenting. I want to go in your direction. Please do that before you get to the whale stage. Thankfully, the solitude for Jonah doesn't just expose Jonah. It exposes the grace of the Lord. No matter where you've been. No matter how dark it's felt. The arm of the Lord is not too short to save. Jonah learns to repent in solitude. Jesus makes wise decisions in solitude. Mark chapter 1. Have you ever been in this situation where you just feel like, I don't have time to think. You just want to pull your hair out. You just feel like life just races by and, and the only, all you have time for is just react. This is happening. I got to do that. This is happening. Now this is happening. And you just live your whole life just sort of reacting to situations. There's so much pressure externally on you. You just feel like you just don't have time to think. Jesus comes into this small town and he begins to heal a few people. And not surprisingly, it feels like the whole town gathers at the door. 
And he's up way late in the wee hours of the morning, healing people. And finally, people go back home, and then they begin to spread the news around to everybody else. And guess what happens the next morning? Even more people are back at his door. But when they come back to his door, he's not there. Because while it was still dark, very early in the morning, he got up and he found a desolate, solitary place to pray. Now, we don't know what happened to the disciples. My guess is they got woke up by the crowd. People are coming to knock on the door. Is this the Jesus guy who healed my friend next door? I'm interested in that. And so people begin flooding towards the house and the disciples are saying, where's Jesus? You were sleeping next to him, John. What happened? And so they start scouting around the countryside and they find Jesus in this solitary place praying. And they're saying, we've struck gold. Everybody here is looking for you. We're in the right place. It couldn't possibly. This is a no brainer, Jesus. They just react. Get up. People are coming. This must be the right place. Who could possibly want to be in a different place than this place? And Jesus does something that I think totally stuns the disciples. Yep. Time to go to another town. I think it's contrary to anything that you and I would ever think. Just when the iron's hot... Oh, I don't have time to pray about it. It's just obvious. This is the next obvious move. Anyone would say that. If you're over 25, especially if you're over 40, you have hundreds of decisions that you wish you said, Oh, if I'd just given it a little bit more time. Instead of waking up and orient, orienting my whole world around myself, saying, this is what would be obvious from my vantage point. I'm sure God's going to affirm it. Instead of saying that, saying, what's obvious to God's vantage point? His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. So I must wake up and say, I've got to get rid of what I think might be obvious in order for me to learn what it is that God would want me to do. It might be the very opposite thing than what you and I might think. Some of us are critical places in our lives in making decisions. And God has instituted solitude to get you away from the pressure and what may appear to be obvious and for him to pour into your life and say, no, this is the way I want you to go. It might be going to North Africa. It could be a host of things. And my prayer for you as you're thinking about who I should marry or who I should date or what career I should have or should I be changing careers or what should I do with my neighbor or what should I be doing with my parents or what should I be doing with some other relationship that you would give plenty of space to God Almighty to come in and shape what it is you should be doing and the direction you should be going. 
It may be that the obvious thing is what God wants you to do. I'm not saying he's going to make you do a U-turn each time. It just stuns me that Jesus says, yeah, I see that, but it's time to go in a different direction. And it may be time for you to go in a different direction. So in solitude, you learn a lot of things. You learn perspective. You're a lot smaller than you think. You learn repentance. You learn direction. So how do I go from here? So I've written this on your little outline. These are the three steps that I want you to take. My guess is it will be less than 2% will follow all the way through this. That's not to say you're not good people. I'm just saying that I've done these things before and statistics show you might do them and I just don't quite get to the end of them. But I put myself at the end purposely now, so I'm going to know if you got to the end of it. First of all, you've got to make a plan. When, where, how am I going to have solitude? Don't go home and say, I just hope solitude happens this week. Most of you know, solitude doesn't just happen. It's not on the bumper sticker. Solitude happens. It just doesn't. Other things happen to get in the way of solitude. And so you have to make a plan. What's your plan? You're going to have to work with your spouse, probably, if you're married, to know what is your plan? How am I going to do this? It's not going to be easy. Secondly, you've got to pick a person to hold you to it. You've got to hold on to this with both hands. And unless it's just a dire emergency, and that's not probably most of the things that you think are dire, you and your friend or partner or uh, brother or coach or friend, you've got to hold on to these things with both hands and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you accountable to having this time. And then, probably the most critical piece in this whole plan, is you have to tell your pastor. So my email address is here, and you say, Paul, I'm going to take my solitude time at, and then I can be praying for that time for you. I would make the time at least a couple of hours. Fifteen minutes solitude is, you know, that's a nap. And so you need to say, where am I going to have two hours to let all this stuff that I'm so caught up in, all the business, all the lies I've got to change, the world I've got to conquer, let that sort of drain out of me and say, okay, now I'm really giving some space for God to work in my life. Don't be super concerned about thinking about other things. Just, just let those things drift away. And you're going to need some time for that. Some of you need some perspective in your life. You've gotten going so fast and you've put yourself, maybe not meanly, you've just put yourself in the center of your own life. It's all about you. Some of you need to say, God, I'm sorry, I'm repenting. I know exactly what you want me to do, I just haven't been doing it. Some of you need direction. God, I don't know what to do. It doesn't appear at all obvious. Would you help me? Let's pray together. Lord, this is the most radical of all the spiritual disciplines. It's the most countercultural. 
It's going to feel as if we're not getting anything done. It's going to feel impossible. Oh, I just can't make that happen. All those are signs that we're too much and you're too little. So I'm praying for your divine help. And for whatever need is out here, perspective, repentance, direction, I'm praying for that to be answered in that time of solitude, Lord. Would you do that for these people, your people? Lord, you've given us so many things, and we take up an offering now, not because you have any needs. We have the need to give away. It helps us remember that we're not in control of supplying everything that we need. You are the great supplier. So take these gifts, use them for your kingdom. Here in Wilmington, here in this church, around the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.